Moms podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms mother in the same way. We should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thanks so much for listening today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 30 of the podcast. It's Jessica, and I am so very glad that you are here. <sighs> the summer is royally depleting me as a human, <laughs> but uh, we're on the home stretch. Three more weeks to go for us, and so I hope that you are doing well as well. I'm trying to be present. I'm trying to enjoy it. It's just a lot of hours. Am I right? Anywho, today I have a fantastic episode for you to keep you company. My guest is Angie Lucas. Angie has a unique motherhood perspective because she has participated in three types of motherhood. She became a stepmom, she adopted a child, and then went on after years of infertility to have her own biological child. So she speaks to a wide range of moms on a wide range of topics given her unique perspective. She's learned a lot from these unique roles and it's taught her a lot about mothering in general. Angie is an amazing, extraordinary mom and I can't wait for you to hear more about her motherhood journey and I know you're going to learn so much from her and her experience. So let's get to my conversation with Angie Lucas. All right, I'm excited to be chatting with Angie Lucas today. Hi, Angie. Hi there, Jessica. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. Where am I speaking to you from today? I, I live in Bluffdale, Utah, which is a kind of a small ruralish town in mm-hmm. Salt Lake County. Are you from that area? Um, I'm from, yeah, really nearby the neighboring city, Riverton. I you know, was born in Idaho, lived there for a few years, but mostly I'm a Utah girl. Cool. That's awesome. Well, we are yeah. recording this over the summer with both of our fingers crossed that our kids will be quiet, but <laughs> I had a spot open up and I'm so excited to be chatting with you about your motherhood journey. So for people that may not know you already, would you just give a little background on yourself and your family? Sure. Yes. Um, so professionally, I'm a writer and always have been. I you know, was always loved English in school and, and studied that at Utah State University. And then I've done varying jobs in writing and marketing and magazine publishing and that kind of thing. Um, and then personally, um, my claim to fame is that I, I've achieved what I like to call the motherhood trifecta. So I have a stepson and I have a daughter through adoption, and I have a son through birth. So I have basically one of each, which kind of makes my story unique. Very unique, very unique. And did it come in that order for you? Uh huh. Okay. Yep. I would guess that's not quite how you envisioned motherhood <laughs> unfolding, right? So can you right. just detail a little bit more about how how things progressed when you started dating somebody who had a child what did you think of that what did you think your role would look like and kind of what did it end up looking like and what have you learned that process of becoming an instant stepmother um that's a great question and you know it's um like thinking back when we started dating um, my stepson was seven and I actually worked with my husband that's how we met was at work and um he was just one of the things I loved most about my husband, and this is just this great blessing I had, was to see what a great dad he was. Like, I could see that and know that before we ever got married. Um, and he was just this wonderful, devoted dad who loved his son so much, and I loved watching that. Um, so I had that great peek into his fatherhood, um, you know, 
capabilities and, and his sort of approach to fatherhood. Um, and I was just excited to, you know, I guess I would say I wasn't like, I was nervous about it. I mean, I think looking back, it was scary to think about like being an instant stepmother. Um, I didn't have a lot of experience with blended families personally. I um, am the second of six children. And as I was looking back in my family, um, my parents stayed married, both sets of grandparents stayed married. I only had one aunt out of my, let's see, how many do I have? Like eight aunts. Only one of my aunts ever even got divorced and she remarried the husband that she divorced. So I didn't like have this context for this. So I did, it was a challenging landscape to navigate because it was completely new to me. Right. And was his mom still in the picture as well in Uh his life? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's balancing being present, being involved and not overstepping, I would imagine. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think every, um, every step parent has a very different situation. You know, every family situation is different, but you can times that by two or four when it comes to a blended family, because there's all these extra dynamics added. Um, but yeah, I think it's very different if you married a widower or if, um, you know, where in our situation, we had my stepson living with us half the time. It was almost 50, 50. Um, so he was kind of back and forth between two houses. We lived about, you know, 10 miles apart. And so that dynamic was challenging too. Um, but I mean, I went in, I tried to go in with my eyes wide open, knowing, knowing what, that it was going to be challenging. It wasn't going to be perfect, but at the same time, we did have a lot of alone time too. It, in a way, like having him half the time and then having being just the two of us half the time, it helped to be able to manage that dynamic because we had we had a break, if right. that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And that sounds kind of desirable right now in the middle of summer to me. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> and, I, and I mean, that's in the nicest way possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, it would be interesting. And, and a lot of families face that with adoption or foster care or things where you're not going through the baby phase. You're not doing right. that early bonding and growing them up, you know, um, raising them in a certain way and in a certain lifestyle that you envision and you're intentional about. Suddenly you're right. just getting a seven-year-old and developing a relationship from that stage going on. So there's got to be some tricky stuff going on of things that have already been established that may or may not be exactly what you had envisioned. Is that oh, for sure. True? And one thing that was funny is that when we adopted my daughter, it was weird to me to have a child full time. It was like, what? Yeah. What? You have them all the time? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, also, I used to say, you know, I have experience parenting from age seven up, but I was a newbie with infant on up to age seven. So now my daughter's eight. So I'm, I'm starting to see some of the, some of that experience from my stepson is kicking in now, which is great because I, you know, I learned how to relate to him at that age. And, and there are, there's just certain things that are pretty similar in age, you know, across age, age development, you know, for sure. Angie, it really blows my mind too, that every time I have a child, I like forget everything that I've previously done. And even when I've started as, you know, with my kids as babies for each one of them, it's like starting all over with their personality, with how do I breastfeed? How do I get them on a schedule? Like I literally forget a lot of these things. And yes, some things are like riding a bike and you hop back on. You're like, oh yeah, okay, I've got this. And, And you tweak it accordingly. And it's some things are easier than others, but some things it's just like, have I literally ever done this before? And it feels like, no. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. And you know, one thing that was a gift of starting out as a step parent 
is that from the very beginning, I didn't have any control really. Like I didn't have, have very much control over almost anything. And I had to learn to just love this child for who he was and not taking a lot of responsibility for how he turns out, if that makes sense. Because I didn't have a lot of ability to control, like what school he went to, or how things, um, you know, if there was a challenge at school, how that challenge got resolved. I had very little input or control into any of that. Um, so I learned to just love him and let him be who he was. And I'm realizing with my with my children I've had since that that's a lesson you need with every child. Like mm. you. Can, you, we have an illusion of control in some ways, but it's really important to learn how to just discover who they are and love who they are and not feel like it's your job to shape every single aspect of their life. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And what a blessing that you had. You're kind of forced into that mentality for your first go around with motherhood. And then right. your other kids can kind of benefit from really having that practical experience. Because a lot of us, it takes so long to get to that point of realizing no matter how many parenting books I read, no matter what I do, they still have their own ideas and we're really not in control at all with our kids. Hey everyone, I know you're loving getting to know Angie, but I wanted to thank one of our show sponsors and that is Love Every. So Love Every is a really cool new company I just found out about and they deliver captivating toys that babies and toddlers obsess over and that parents love. I personally talked to the founder and you guys, they are so intentional about the type of toys that they make because with every kit that you buy, you are getting science-backed, eco-friendly toys tailored to your child's stage of development. Love Every's Play Guide also provides all the guidance parents want on what to do with these toys, when to do it, how to do it, and the research behind why you're engaging with your child with this toy in the way that they describe. It's really incredible. I got the Pioneer Play Kit, and it's one of the toddler sets, and I gave it to my niece for her birthday. The cutest kit of toys. The kit comes with multiple toys, and you might think, oh, I just want those individually, but the toys really pair well together to promote a certain type of learning. So there's a racetrack that's a wooden uh, car track that's so great. There's a book that goes with it. There's a threadable bead kit, a drawstring bag, and an all shapes puzzle that comes with it as well. My niece Quinn could not believe her eyes when she was taking out all these new cool toys. And I felt like the best aunt ever. And I loved that I knew exactly how to use the toys to play with her in a meaningful way. You can feel confident every time you're giving your littles a great start with these toys from Love Every. I cannot recommend the subscription box enough. For limited time, Love Every is offering my listeners a special discount when you subscribe to the Play Kit and you enter my code EMP at checkout. And you know what? You'll get $15 off. It's such a great deal. So that's $15 off your subscription at loveevery.com, L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com with promo code EMP at checkout. I am so grateful for our show sponsors that make this episode and others like it possible. So I want to thank them and really encourage you to take advantage of this great deal. Let's get back to my conversation now with Angie. You know, you think you want to take the blame, you know, everything's your fault. You have to, if you don't do everything just right, they're not going to turn out. You know, there's all, there's still that pressure that I feel, but I have to just remind myself of what I've already learned. Um, And I had read in a parenting book years ago to think of your child rather as rather than thinking of them as clay that you can mold from infancy, think of them as like they're hard plastic and you can make an imprint on them, but they come in a certain shape and 
if you just look at it as discovering who they are instead of trying to force and mold and shape who they are, it's a lot more peaceful for both of you. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I want to ask you a question that might be a little bit sensitive, but it's something that I've heard from a lot of parents struggling with step parenthood and things like that. And it's that if they marry into a family where there's already children, especially if you're not coming in with your own children as well, there can be kind of a rub between your new spouse picking the child and siding with the child or the child's needs and prioritizing that over the marriage at times. And it feels kind of like a tension between oh. that. Would that be okay for you to speak to? And sure. have you experienced that? Sure. And I think I'll have to, I'm going to think out loud kind of for a minute, but I don't, I don't know if that was a huge problem in my particular circumstance. Um, I do think if, the, if I felt any resentment, it was, it would be over just how challenging the circumstance was because, you know, we didn't have as peaceful as of a relationship with, um, my stepson's mother and her husband as we would have liked. Mm -hmm. And despite our efforts to make it as peaceful as we could, it was always a really big challenge. And I would sometimes feel resentful of the way that that would, that tension would affect us as newlyweds. My stepson himself, like he was extremely accepting of me. His mom had already remarried like quite quickly after the divorce. So he was almost like on our, I think I want to say, after the second or third time I met him, he was already like, so when are you guys get married? Like he, <laughs> he would say things like, you know what? I think you would make a really good mom. He would just drop these little hints that were so sweet. Cause I think he was ready for his dad to have that stability that he saw. He just was ready for it. He'd already had that modeled and was like, he wanted his dad to be married. And, um, we, it took us about two years to get there between when we started dating to when we actually got married. And I'm, I'm glad we took that time to work through some of, you know, there's just an added, there's an added challenge to, and new being a newlywed is hard enough um, without having an, this added dynamic that made things more difficult. So yeah, I would sometimes feel resentful of that, but I, I didn't really resent the relationship between my husband and, and his son. And I think, I think it, it might be, and I'm just throwing this out there. It could be, a gender thing too. Like if he had a daughter, maybe I would have had a harder time with that. But, um, and, but I admired their relationship and I liked watching that, that develop. And I honestly didn't try to think of myself as a mother to him, which I think is an important tip for almost any step parent. Like I didn't try to replace his mom. And I told him, I tried to be really upfront when we got married, like, listen, I, I'm not trying to replace your mom. I'm not trying to compete with her. She's your mom. I love you and I'm here for you, but I'm not trying to step into her space. Mm -hmm. So like Mother's Day is fine. Like prioritize her on Mother's Day. I don't expect you to try to treat me equally on Mother's Day. Or, or if there's a, an event at school where you're supposed to invite a mom, invite your mom. Like it won't ever hurt my feelings. And I wanted that to be really clear to him because I don't, I think he was getting a different kind of pressure on the other side mm -hmm. to like call his stepdad dad and that kind of thing, which I, I think was hard for him. And I just didn't want to add any more pressure to what he was already feeling. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm talking a lot here, but what I really tried to look at is my role is to support my husband in his parenting. It's not to parent directly. Mm, I love that. That is a very, very wise position to take. And I 
think what I'm hearing you say is it's a lot about expectation setting, you know, if you yeah. came to expect that, you know, things would unfold a certain way and when they didn't, then yeah, resentment usually is the sentiment when expectations right. are not met. Right. But right. even if you're, you know, kind of bummed or discouraged or frustrated by a, a set of circumstances that you're facing, realizing, but it is what it is. So what can we do based upon what is instead of wishing that they were different and holding on to that. Right. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. you know, I, I kind of think of myself in a way as, as an ant like figure, you know, mm-hmm. versus, and I didn't, I never disciplined. Well, I might have slipped into that occasionally, but it just didn't work. And one thing you realize is it just doesn't work. So why keep doing something that doesn't work? My husband did all the disciplining and I would just like, and it's not easy for me. Anyone who knows me, I had to do a lot of holding my tongue, but you know, whatever you can do to keep the peace, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so as you wanted to grow your family with your husband, I assume that you weren't sure how that was going to look necessarily, but you probably hoped that it was going to come from your own body, right? As most of us start out hoping, right? So tell me how that unfolded and you alluded to already, you ended up adopting. So how did that happen? Oh, and each one of these stories, I swear, could be an entire podcast (laughs) by itself or a book each. I mean, there's just so much to it, but I'll try to just hit the highlights. Um, Yeah, we, um, we were experiencing infertility and, um, Gosh, we got married. My daughter arrived six. It's funny. She arrived six years and eight months after we got married. And that's a long time, really. I mean, we didn't start actively trying for about a year in to the marriage. Um, but I just assumed it was going to be easy and we'd just have more kids. And um, I mean, I'm one of six. No one in my family's really had infertility problems. Um, like besides, besides maybe an aunt. Uh, and I'm just, to me, family meant lots of kids, chaos, you know, just living on top of each other. And here I was in several ways being forced to like almost redefine my definition of family. It felt so different from what I was used to. Not only was I in a, in a blended family, um, but now I was also struggling to have a biological child. And that journey itself was really challenging. Uh, Lots of ups and downs. Um, and I like, I, I think I had six nieces and nephews welcomed into the family during that time. Um, and I'm the second oldest. So that would be, that was hard to see younger siblings easily getting pregnant, having children. And here's me thinking like, what's wrong with me? Why can't my body do this thing that is supposed to be so automatic and so natural? It really rocked me in a lot of ways. When it came to the adoption journey, like, I never wanted adoption to be a second choice. Like, I never wanted to be like, oh, well, I'm only going to do this because I can't get what I really want. I I wanted to wait until it was like, until it felt like my first choice, until it felt like I was doing it for its own sake and not as a substitute if that makes sense. Yeah. You were waiting to bring home your child, right? Right. Because that is, I believe that our kids are meant for us, regardless of how they come to us. They are truly, truly meant for us. Yeah. You had to get to a point where that child was ready and here for your family. Right. And I had to like make peace with, I wanted to be fully, I wanted to work through the issues before I had a child, as far as like, I wanted to kind of be a hundred percent in and not being like still wishing that I had a biological child. And it took a long time to get there. Some people get there automatically. I have friends who just were like, 
always knew they wanted to adopt even before they even knew they had infertility problems. Um, but for me, I, and you know, there's also this other, it, we already had a child that there were ups and downs with that situation too. So you had to kind of wait for there to be emotional space to even tackle some of this, some of these issues. So um, I started feeling these strong promptings and impressions that it was time to start looking into adoption. And I want to say that was in 2010. And I went to an agency and we started to get certified and we had just started along the process and I'd gone to this, uh, you have to get a certain amount of training. So I had gone to this, uh, kind of an adoption conference with my husband and we had learned all about the different options and I actually walked away from that feeling quite overwhelmed (laughs) and you know because they make it very clear how long it takes for couples and you know the challenges with fostering are are really big I mean the goal with fostering is to reunite the biological family so I I struggled with thinking like I don't want to be at odds with the whole point of the foster system I don't want to be you know (laughs) trying to keep the child they're trying to reunite and I you know I I would I only wanted to do that if I could really be like okay I'm here for the best interests of the child not to serve my needs but I wasn't there I was trying to serve my needs Mm -hmm. um and my desire this like just overwhelming desire to have a have a child um because growing up I was always you know the second of oldest of six I was always a, a little mother I I was the one who collected other people's babies I was always mothering other people's children and like the irony of not being able to have a child of my own, you know, it it was not lost on me. Mm -hmm. Um, the way it unfolded was just an absolute miracle. We hadn't even finished our adoption profile yet when a relative of a relative reached out to us and said, I want to meet you guys. It's a complicated, put on your thinking caps here. (laughs) It's a complicated thing. So my sister, her husband, has a, a half-brother who has a daughter who was pregnant, okay. and her and her name was Annalise. So she's my sister's niece by marriage, and she reached out to us. Um, she was, I can't remember how far along she was at the time when she reached out to us. I mean, like, probably six months or more along in her pregnancy, and she was 19, and she wasn't going to stay with the birth dad, but we had this great privilege of being able to meet both the birth dad and the birth mom together. They came together to our house to meet us. Brave. Even though, go ahead. That's really brave. I, I mean, I, I just have so much respect for people pursuing this path for the good of their child, especially together. Like, I just have the utmost respect for that. Oh, me too. And it was, it really was incredible. Like, if there is a fairy tale adoption story, I mean, we got it. It was, um, I know they don't always go like this, but. Here was this, they were both 19, they were old enough to like know what, you know, really understand the consequences of what, what the situation they were in. And um, I think on some level, they both knew that they just weren't a good match for each other, but they're both great people separately. They just, they kind of had a toxic relationship together. Um, And so they came and had dinner with us. And when they left, we heard later, they both said, it's like us in 15 years. Like yeah. she and I had so many common interests and the birth dad and my husband had so many common interests, even strange things. Like they both liked photography and cars and were both artists. I mean, it was crazy. And then the same thing with, with um, our sweet birth mom and me. And they didn't decide, right? They, I think they had decided, but they didn't tell us for a few weeks after hmm. um, that they had 
decided to choose us for their child. But I mean, it was a whirlwind. By the time that we, I think from the time that we met them and when the time the baby was born was just nine weeks. So we were like, or maybe it was the time when they told us, that's probably it, when they, when they actually told us that they had picked us versus when the baby was born. It was, yeah, nine weeks. She was a couple weeks early. Oh my gosh. And what was that, that like holding your baby? Here she is. <laughs> It was like, you know, it's not what you expect necessarily. We walked into that hospital room and my husband was instantly smitten. Like it was over for him the minute he laid eyes on her and she was just laying there. The birth mom had put her in this little tutu and she had designed, she had put so tiny buttons on a onesie and she, she, it was very important to her to present the baby in this specific way and her favorite colors. And she had two days in the hospital with her watching Little Mermaid, which was her favorite movie. And when we came, like I had, I mean, I spent six years, that is a long time, like mourning and struggling. So my heart just couldn't believe it. I think I was a little bit numb for mm. the first couple of days. I just, but my husband was, it was over. Like, and I could see it on his face. <laughs> he was the one that scooped that baby up first. And like, they have been just daddy, daughter, this beautiful relationship ever since. And I had to actually it took me caring for her over the course of days for me to slowly crack that heart open and believe this was happening mm. and to really bond with her. And the funny thing is, you know, six years later, I gave birth and it really was the same thing. Like, I still couldn't believe it because by now it had been 12 years. I can't believe I'm giving birth to a baby. I'm holding this baby in my arms and I still can't like my heart, I'm still numb. Like I didn't have that hospital moment where you're just like a wash and love the moment you see them. It takes me a couple of days because I think I'd been so hurt mm. for so long. And so many times I couldn't let it in until I couldn't believe it. Mm. I couldn't like, I thought I was ready, but like both times I would, it would take me over the course of the first couple of weeks for that feeling to settle in. And it came that whole magical, wonderful, like I love you beyond life feeling came. It just had to gradually work its way into my, to my heart. Yeah. And I think when you've been through grief and you've walked the path that you have walked, yeah, there's boundaries that are put up that are not just like leveled down within an right. instant. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine to feel however you feel after you right. become a parent. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge those feelings in that transition. It's not that you loved them any less than, you know, a person that felt instantly bonded or instantly euphoric. It's all, it's all okay. And it can all be right. quote unquote normal. Right? right. And so when you held this baby that you adopted, did you think adoption would then just be how you continue to grow your family or were you intent on continuing to try and battle the infertility? You know, at that time, I, I just felt fulfilled. I didn't really, I mean, I always had in the back of my mind this dream of a large family, but I felt this this part of my, this piece of my heart had been, sorry, had been filled that was just so desperate for so long. I felt like a whole human for the first time, you know? And as I like, I just couldn't believe my luck. So I was just completely blissful. I did not care about being sleepless the sleepless nights there I had no complaints but she was also an easy baby I will admit that um but she um she just like filled up a piece of me that had been missing so I just was so grateful for so long and it wasn't until um 
she got a few years old that I started, the longing started coming back. And I know, I know how rare my situation was with this adoption. I know how it never happens that fast for people. We weren't even, we had to like fast track our paperwork so that we could like have it ready by the time the baby was born. Um, and for us to take her home, it was, it just doesn't happen like that. Uh, it just was meant to be, it felt like this miracle. And I, I just was like, you know, who gets two miracles like this, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was, I was just immersed in like raising this sweet girl. And so I think it wasn't for a couple of years when I really, the thing that really started to hurt me was the thought of her not having close siblings. Cause she was 16 years younger than my stepson <laughs> and their relationship is really sweet, but it's, that's a big gap. They only lived in the same house for two years. <laughs> so, um, I just like, I'm so close to my sisters and my siblings that I just was heartbroken over the thought of her not having siblings. And I didn't care how they came. I loved adoption. I would have done it again. Um, and I, and I was completely open to infertility as well, but I wanted certainty is the problem. That's what held me back. Like I wanted to know that whatever path I picked was going to turn out, but Mm -hmm. there aren't guarantees either way. And, um, it's really trying to pursue both at once. You kind of have to pick. Some people can try to do infertility while trying to do adoption, but both of them have are so overwhelming that I don't know how I couldn't do that. I couldn't like pursue both at the same time. I had to pick one or the other. Mm-hmm. And so at first we, it was a, it was a whirlwind. We, um, when I finally, and my husband was kind of surprised actually, he thought, Oh, well we, we got Kira. Like you, I didn't realize you were that you were having these feelings but at the same time just because this is how it goes we had my stepson was a teenager and he was going through a really challenging period and there I didn't really feel like there was room because it was so overwhelming and challenging to bring up these feelings not only was I fulfilled by my daughter but we were struggling with my stepson and like to be like hey hun can we you know go get a loan for thirty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah and let's add more to our plate that sounds like a really good idea right now yeah <laughs> exactly you know I, I kind of had to wait for things to settle down a little bit and when they did you know I got my husband on board again and we started we went through we went infertility first we, we tried IVF for the first time and it it didn't work um and we kind of discovered early on it wasn't going to work and that if it was going to work, it was going to be more expensive than we thought. So I was like, okay, well, I love adoption. We'll do adoption. So we went down that path and I got qualified with two agencies and I even have an, an adoption book that we did, the profile, and we were ready to go. But situ- every situation that was shown to us, I'm not joking, was forty to $50,000. And it just... I just don't, I still don't understand why it has to be that expensive. Like no part of me understands because it's not like the birth parent gets, you know, (laughs) any portion of that. Yes. So it was, and it was just like it, we kept hitting dead end after dead end after dead end with that. I was actually something, I I talked, a conversation with a friend who had had successful IVF after similar issues. I, I kind of, that, that little bug got planted again or that little thought got planted again so then we went back to infertility again and um and and trying to solve that and me realizing like I'm getting close to 40 and if I can I would love to experience pregnancy all this time my infertility was somewhat unexplained they couldn't really tell me why it wasn't clear why so I kind of thought 
and a lot of what was holding me back was fear. And I thought, do I want to be a person, person who lives her life in fear and has all these regrets later? Or do I want to take the courageous path? And adoption was a courageous path too, because you risk yourself, you put yourself out there for potential heartbreak both ways. But I just decided I was going to like, you know, that we, we decided that we were going to take the courageous path and, um, you know, put it all on the line. And we did. And it was hard. I mean, (laughs) it was hard. We had, um, we finally did IVF. We had two miscarriages, a fail, another failed cycle. And it was on our fourth try the second time around that I finally got this positive pregnancy test. And this one made it, you know, Mm -hmm. my first miscarriage was, was a second trimester miscarriage. So it was really traumatic because on some level I kind of thought after I've been through this long of a wait after, you know, 12 years, 10 years, I think at that time, like God's not going to let this happen to me. That's sort of my thinking. And when I went to that doctor's office and there was no heartbeat and the rug just got pulled out from under me, like I, I was really, it was really hard. Um, then after that, like I had to gather my courage again and have another miscarriage and I had gathered my courage again and then just no pregnancy on that third attempt. And then the fourth time I was like, okay, I think this is the last time I can do this to myself. I'm trying to be courageous here, but I can only take so much. So on that fourth time, um, it worked and I spent the whole pregnancy, like just kind of like biting my nails and like, is this going to happen? But there was something in me very strong that was driving to that moment. I had had feelings and impressions that pushed me on this path. And as much as I tried to, when I would weigh giving up or not, like I knew I couldn't, there was something in me that was pulling me forward that I had to do this. And now I know why I had, it worked eventually, but I had to go through, unfortunately, this, this terrible roller coaster to get there. Oh, I cannot even imagine. And unfortunately, there are people listening who've been through that same path. And it is excruciating and seems so unfair. And it's like, okay, after 12 years, is that enough waiting time? Like, I'm still going after this. So when's my luck going to change, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And then you do get your miracle, but that's not even true for everybody. And so kind of the theme of of your journey and of this, all the different variations of motherhood that you've experienced is really that you just never know what's going to (laughs) happen, right? And you have to be able to accept what is and reestablish clear expectations according to what is. And so what has all of these experiences with motherhood and just in your life experiences in general, how has that shaped you and influenced the way you do view the future and that you do set goals or hope for things or things like that. Has that shifted based upon all of these experiences? I think for sure. I think that, um, I had to learn and it took me a long time. I had to learn patience through this. I had to learn how to be courageous. And I had to learn that I, I thought that courage was always rewarded with like you, you just, you know, I'm going to be courageous. So I'm going to get the reward, but sometimes you're courageous and you fall flat and you have to pick yourself up. And when I went in for that fourth attempt, I, in my heart, I knew I couldn't do it again. I couldn't put myself through it again. And so I was just basically, I had to kind of let go on a certain level and say, and I also had been in counseling around the, you know, before the miscarriage and through that, luckily I had started seeing a therapist because I mean, it's trauma. 
it affects you. Um, this amount of, you know, the, the challenge of infertility, it is, it is a hard, hard thing. So I had a, a really good therapist throughout that time. And, um, I knew by that point I had this confidence that I was going to be okay either way. I was either going to get pregnant and have my miracle baby on this fourth attempt, or it wasn't going to work. And I was going to go back to therapy and I was going to grieve and I was going to go through what I needed to go through to move on with my life and not have this hanging over me in this way anymore. And, um, I'm not saying that doing that is what made it work, but I did have to get to that point, And I did get to that point. I really firmly believed at that moment, I'm going to be okay either way. And prior to that, I didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe I could, that my daughter could be okay without having siblings close to her age. Um, I, and that's me trying to control it still and thinking that I could control it. And even now, um, my kids are further apart than I want. Than I want. They're six six years and eight months. Isn't that funny? I said that earlier. Yeah. Six years and eight months from the time we got married to when we got Kira, and six years and eight months from her birth to the next baby. So I'm excited to see What's what happens. Next? In six years yeah. and eight months. <laughs> How much longer do you have to wait for the the next six years and eight months? <laughs> for something amazing to happen after that. But yeah. um, so I think I had to learn, and it was hard. There were definitely times where I thought I will not I will not be able to be happy if I'm not able to be a mother now with my perspective if I knew what I know now I could have been I but I learned those lessons through that that you it really is a, you can choose how you view your life it's not um you know and loving what is accepting what is like you keep talking about that's a lesson that I've slowly learned um and I kind of wish I'd known that I would have had less heartache throughout it if I could have just been like I'm going to be okay either way I believe that now I didn't believe that before it would have made it a lot more peaceful if I could have believed it then but I think going through these things is what gets you there so right. if somebody's listening and they are in that phase of when this happens then I will be happier or they're they're holding on and clinging to a certain outcome for the sake of them finally feeling peace, relief, joy, whatever it is. Right. So you know now you can love what is, regardless of whatever your present moment is. You right. know that, but like, what could somebody have told you back then that would have helped you to understand that better? It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to believe it and live it every day. Is there anything? I wonder if it's just I because I think I've heard some of the, some of the things that have penetrated my heart recently. I'm sure I've heard at some point along the way. I just don't think I was ready to hear them or let them in. So I want to I think just be patient with yourself. Mm-hmm. And maybe if someone out there is hearing my story and, and relating to it in some way, um, what you're feeling is OK. I, I spent a lot of my journey kind of a little bit suppressing my feelings about this like I was like determined to be cheerful despite it despite my problems if that makes sense I was determined to go to baby showers and not let it hold me back and not keep it from keep this from allowing me to be happy for other people who are having children because I didn't want everyone else to be infertile just because I was Mm -hmm. but um I still I and I I had happiness I want to I want to emphasize that I had professional goals I was working towards I it it didn't like overshadow every aspect of my life, but there was a part of me that believed I would not be fulfilled as a woman, as a mother, stepmother, if I wasn't able to, um, you know, have 
multiple children who could, you know, mm-hmm. siblings. I mean, even with my daughter, she, she, she solved my childlessness, but she didn't solve the ache of infertility, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and solving childlessness is huge. Like that was, and you know, I had my stepson, but only half the time. So it, it wasn't, and I didn't get to, I didn't get the privilege of, of having him, you know, as a as an infant and, and raising him up the whole way. Um, but yeah, so I think that if I had been open younger to some of the things that I, you know, I've read Loving What Is by Byron Katie, that was huge. Yeah. And um, there's a book by Eckhart Tolle, the first one, not A New Earth, but um, a lot of these things were realizing I am enough and I can, there's joy in the moment. And I found joy in my life, but I always had this hole that I let be too big. You know, mm. I always was like, I can be happy with other parts of my life, but I can't be happy with, you know, my status as a woman or a, or a you know, motherhood until X, Y, or Z happens. Mm. Now I believe I could have, if maybe I'd encountered some of those books earlier on, but I don't know, it could have just been, I'm stubborn and I needed that process. But wherever you are in the process, just, if you can just leave space in your heart to let it in, you don't have to like let something in that doesn't feel true to you but if you just can leave space for it it will eventually take hold when it's the right time I love that and like you said you probably heard a lot of these positive messages and words of affirmation beforehand but you weren't in a place to receive them so maybe simply just hang on it won't always be like this like every day is a new opportunity for new things to come into your life and maybe it's the exact thing you've been praying for and maybe it's different and equally beautiful you just don't right. know, but if you don't keep living and keep trying and keep waking up and keep getting out of bed, you don't know what you could be missing. Right. So, so and get I, up. I do think it's mm-hmm. important to look to people who are living a happy, fulfilled life, who maybe have this, the thing you're afraid of, you know, like maybe childlessness. There are people who are childless who have happy, fulfilled lives. Just believe that it's possible, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I think like the Eckhart Tolle stuff, you know, I had identified too strongly with this dream. Like I, I put a lot of my identity into this, but it isn't my whole identity. I'm a valuable human with or without children. I'm a valuable human. Anyway, I can find joy. I can be present. I can contribute without it. I didn't always believe that, but I do now. Mm. And I'm glad I believe that now because I think it sets me up for being able to weather whatever storm's coming next. I love that. Yeah, and you're modeling that for your kids, and that is so, so powerful. Well, you ended up writing a picture book about grief. Yes. So who is this picture book for? Tell me about the title and where people can find it. So it's called My Big Dumb Invisible Dragon, and actually this picture book was born out of this journey I was on. It came um, after my miscarriage. That was I've experienced grief before, but the, the second trimester miscarriage was – that was what brought me to my knees like nothing else. And I, I tried all the things to get me through that. You know, I relied on my faith. I relied on Brene Brown. I relied on, um, friends, family, prayer, all the things I just had to, and meditation and yoga. I had to pull everything together to like, help me get through this. And writing is one of the tools that I use to cope. And so I was doing some writing. I do a lot of journaling and I do creative writing as well. And I just decided to start thinking about how does this grief feel in my body? I was trying to, I needed to put this, these feelings somewhere. They were so heavy and overwhelming. I needed to 
put them somewhere. Um, and I wrote various versions of a children's story that tried to embody grief and tried to help uh, help children understand, um, like maybe put some, make it um, something that they can relate to and that would make them feel less alone when they go through a grief experience. And I landed on this, um, this metaphor of a dragon because for me, the, I felt like this pressure, like on my shoulders, on my chest. Sometimes it was hard to breathe. I felt like the shadow cast over me and it made me like, I had this vision. It feels like there's this giant dragon sitting on my head and other people can't see it, but it's there and it's, you know, it's making things dark and, but sometimes, you know, it feels good to curl up in that and just, like, feel it. So um, I wrote this story about a little boy. And in my original draft, it doesn't say what happens. Just a little boy who has this grief experience. And then this dragon swoops in and lands on him. And he tries to bargain with the dragon. And he gets angry at it. And sometimes he curls up with it. And he um, tries to um, make it go away in all these different ways. But eventually he just learns to make peace with this dragon and as he does over time the dragon gets less ominous less present um less heavy but it's still there and it like comes back for his birthday party because that's how grief works Mm -hmm. you know it'll go it'll ebb and flow and it gets less heavy over time but um anyway so i just that's that's kind of where i landed with this metaphor of how the grief felt and um i went to a writing conference and I met an editor who was looking for books just like this and it kind of like again was just magic meant to be kind of felt like serendipity it just happened from there um and my editor felt strongly that we needed to be clear about for children about what happened in the story so in the story the boy does lose his mother it happens off the page um but the idea really is is to help children to relate to the idea of grief and even children who aren't grieving to be able to see and maybe understand what a friend is going through. And there's a little boy in the story who um, is a good friend to the main character. And so, you know, uh, there's a, there's opportunities to have conversations about how to be a friend to someone who's grieving and what does grief feel like. Uh, but my editor felt strongly that we needed to have a concrete story for kids to connect to and I do think that's true. I mean, she, she knows her stuff. I, I like, I, at first I was like, no, I want it to be vague. But once, um, I saw the art coming back, I was like, okay, I, I get it. It really does need to, it needed to be more clear. Yeah. And anyway, I love it. I love that you're providing this resource for parents to bond over these topics with their children and to support them. And just because we don't talk or we don't want to talk about some of these hard things, it doesn't mean that they're not going to experience them or feel them silently. And that's right. even more dangerous than bringing them up. So I think we should not be fearful in tackling some of these really tough topics with them, but give them support, love, and resources to help them through because that's right. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. And just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not there. So, oh, props to you, Angie. <laughs> I just, I love your story. I just appreciate you sharing your motherhood journey so, so much. Congratulations on this book. I'll link to it in the show notes at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. The final question I always ask my guests is centered around the mission of the podcast about how when we believe that we are truly extraordinary as mothers, as women, as people, 
when we believe in the attributes that make us unique, we can do so much more with them. And some of the things that we're doing every day and not giving that much credit for, they're really amazing. And it could help just elevate our confidence and enhance our contribution when we believe in ourselves. So can you tell me for you, Angie, what is something that makes you extraordinary? Um, I, I would say my story, you know, I have a very, um, circumstances have kind of forced me to rise to occasions that I didn't think I could. Um, so I would say just this unique, um, set of circumstances, this opportunity I've had to parent in these three very different ways. And that, I think that makes, that makes me extraordinary. And I have learned how to, um, you know, let go of, like we've talked about these expectations and learn to just love the situation I'm in. And also I have this gift now of being able to say with a hundred percent assurance that it doesn't matter how your children come to you. You love them the same. Like the love is the same step parent adoption birth. I love them the same. They're different and I parented them differently, but the love is the same. Mm -hmm. And that has been a gift to know that. That's so beautiful. Amazing. Is there anywhere else people can find you online, Angie, if they want to follow along with your story? Sure. I'm at AngieLucas.com and I'm at AngieLucas on Instagram. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Angie. This has just been such a treat and I just am so inspired by your journey. So thank you for sharing. You're extraordinary. Thank you. What a great conversation with Angie and I want to thank her so much for coming on the show today. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at Jessica Dahlquist 3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Show notes and links to how to find Angie and everything we talked about today on the show is over at ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com. Thank you so much to our show sponsor and thank you for being here. I hope you loved it. And if you enjoyed what you heard or you want to dig back into the archives, I would love for you to share the show with a friend or see what else Extraordinary Moms Podcast has to offer. Thanks so, so much for tuning in today, and we will see you next week for another episode with another Extraordinary Mom. Bye.